0: So I think both types of confession are undeniably important. Confessing to God, confessing to our brothers and sisters, you know, in his 4th century autobiographical work aptly called Confessions, St. Augustine captures the importance of both of these types of confession. I want to take a moment just to read through a couple of passages that demonstrate that emphasis on on both of those. So the first one, they're going to be on the screen behind me. You can follow along as I read. First of all, he says this, but the abyss of the human conscience lies naked to your eyes, O Lord. So would anything in me be secret, even if I were unwilling to confess to you? I would be hiding you from myself, but not myself from you. But now that my groans bear witness that I find no pleasure in myself, you shed light upon me and give me joy. You offer yourself lovable and longed for. To you, then, Lord, I lie exposed exactly as I am. And then one more. I confess not only before you in secret exultation tinged with fear and secret sorrows infused with hope, but also in the ears of believing men and women, the companions of my joy and sharers in my mortality my fellow citizens still on pilgrimage with me, those who have gone before and those who will follow, and all who hear me, bear me company in my life. I confess to you, God. I bear my soul to you, and to not do so would be pointless because as my omniscient creator, you know all the intricacies of my life. But in addition to confessing my sin to you, God, I also confess to my brothers and sisters, to my fellow citizens who are on this pilgrimage with me. It's been about 10 years since I read through this work and still a decade later, there are sections of that book that stick with me to this day. But as I revisit these words today and as I have over the last few weeks, I mean, what we've just read seems rather unusual. In a day and age when the tendency is to point the finger at others and not to point the finger at myself. This is a little bit shocking to read as he bears all and provides really a comprehensive list of his personal grievances. If, If you've read through that book, you understand what I'm talking about. But we read accounts of everything from the passions and sinful lusts of his young adulthood all the way to sins of his childhood. One incident he recounts where he has stolen a bunch of pears. And the the crazy thing about that sin is that he already possessed pears that were superior in quality to the pears he stole. It's an incident that ends with him throwing out the pears that he stole. In striking honesty... He bears his soul to God and in so doing gives us a clear window into the darkest parts of his being. And that is an uncommon practice. I think not only do we tend not to highlight our own failings and rather highlight the grievances of others, but I think much of the present day church has really discarded confession, at least in practice. In theory, yeah, of course, we are all on board with confession of sin. And maybe it's not even an outright refusal to confess our sins. Perhaps we are completely on board with the first paragraph we read. We confess our sins to God because it would be foolish not to. He knows us inside and out. But I think a lot of times with that practice comes the assumption that we have confessed to God so we don't need to confess to one another. I mean, that's something that the Catholics do, right? We've moved beyond that. We can appeal directly to the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we don't need an intermediary to hear our confession and announce absolution over us. This is something that we find the Apostle Paul emphasizing in his first letter to Timothy. In chapter 2, verse 5, we read this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Well, there's, there's one mediator between God and humans, and that is Jesus Christ. It's not a priest or a minister. It's not any other individual who would hear your confession. Through Christ, we have access to God. That's an important Protestant inheritance, right? The church... Or a hierarchy within the church or just an individual in the church is not our point of access. So we confess our sin directly to God. A priest doesn't have to hear our confession. And I would agree in part that that is an important reality that we now understand because of Jesus. And so we do confess our sin directly to God in prayer. And in that confession, we acknowledge that we have fallen short. And we have fallen short, not just in our nature, but the fact that we are actually guilty of specific sins. There are specific ways that we have missed the mark of God's intended design for us. And as we confess, we communicate our remorse for sinning, we ask for forgiveness, and we turn from those sinful ways. This is undeniably a big part of our faith. And, and I think something objective Difficult as it may be to describe or explain, something real takes place on occasions when we confess directly to God. But I think it's important for us to at least consider the fact that maybe the objective thing that takes place isn't a change in God's view of us. We don't practice confession and repentance because God is a petty deity whose fragile ego has been wounded by our sins, and so we repent, and only then is God able to reluctantly offer forgiveness because we've said the right words and backed him into a corner. But Repentance is not a means of twisting God's arm to forgive us. Forgive is what God does. I heard a pastor in Michigan, Kenneth Tanner, recently say this, I can only repent of forgiven sin. There is no other kind. I don't know that repentance or confession changes God's mind about us as much as it helps us in our pursuit of change as the Spirit is drawing us deeper into likeness. All right, back to the text in James 5. Remember, this is all said in the context of prayer in general. It says, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. So back in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful, it's strong or effective. And he says we need to look no further than Elijah as an example of the power of prayer. Now if you are at all familiar with the story of Elijah and his importance in the story of the Jewish people. And if you are at all like me, Elijah may not seem like the best example to use in order to try to get a guy like me to pray. Not because there's something wrong with Elijah, not because Elijah's not a good example, no, quite the contrary. He actually maybe seems a little too good, a little too influential, a little too important. I mean, of course his prayers are effective. He's Elijah, for goodness sake. He's the one that is said to have just been taken to heaven, a rather unusual form of departure from this earth. He doesn't go through the doors of death. This is a guy who makes an appearance at that story we read about in the Gospels referred to as the transfiguration. And he appears with Moses and is there together with Jesus, and those three disciples. This is the guy who many mistake Jesus for in the Gospels. He was an incredibly popular figure in Jewish thought at the time. And prior to Jesus, there are many who think that Elijah was going to return to sort of usher in that messianic age in line with the prophecy we read in Malachi. I mean, come on, don't tell me to look to Elijah in order to encourage me how I can pray and how I should pray. That guy is known for his miraculous works. One of those works, James takes our attention to here in chapter 5. This is an incident we read about in 1 Kings 17 and 18, which recounts an incredible series of events where Elijah denounces the sin of Israel and announces that there is a punishment coming on the house of Israel, and maybe especially on their leader, King Ahab, as they have been drawn into idolatrous ways. And the punishment in this particular instance that Elijah points to was a severe drought. James says this drought lasted three and a half years. Now, you may remember in First Kings 17 and 18, there's a little story tucked away in there where Elijah, too, is feeling the impact of God's punishment. He, too, is feeling the sting of not having food to eat. And if you remember that story, there's a foreign widow from Sidon who saves his life. It's an incredible story tucked away in this larger narrative. But for three and a half years, it doesn't rain. And the punishment was a severe drought. And following this drought, you may remember in this story that there, there's that showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal where the presence of Yahweh is clearly revealed. And then James says that Elijah prays again, and the drought that has lasted three and a half years, that drought, ends and this is the example that James chooses to appeal to to encourage his audience to pray are you kidding me we, we talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago but suffice it to say that when I pray I don't tend to see results like that so, so if you want to encourage me to pray pick something different because that can actually seem discouraging rather than encouraging But I think that the point is not a focus on Elijah's super spiritual status. Rather, I think the interpretive focus here is what James says in verse 17. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Which is actually clearly demonstrated in that story from 1 Kings 17 and 18, where after that successful showdown at Mount Carmel, what happens? Well... Elijah goes off and slaughters the prophets of Baal. I- Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Obviously, he was a hugely important figure within Israel. He did some incredible things and helped turn the hearts of the people back to God. But but I think what James is getting at here is that it wasn't because of his super spiritual status that God hears his prayers. No, according to the line of argument that James is building here, it was what? It was a repentant heart. God didn't hear the prayers of Elijah any more than he hears your prayers or my prayers. God doesn't hear my prayers any more than he hears the prayer of any other repentant heart. And so in line with what James is saying, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. God hears the cry of a repentant heart. So now we reach the last two verses of this book. The last two verses, the conclusion of our series. And to be honest, it may seem like an odd way to conclude a letter. We don't find any benediction of any sort. There's no off-the-cuff statement about Tell my family and friends I send my greetings and my love. And it's just, hey, also do this. Here's an additional instruction. And then it sort of ends abruptly. But but this last instruction that we find in James is connected, I think, to the overall conversation we've been having this morning in regard to repentance and confession. Verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So, one of the, and then it ends. That's the conclusion. Seems a little bit odd. But one of the central truths that's expressed in different ways throughout this letter and expressed in this section that we've been reading through over the last couple of weeks is this the faith that we are a part of is communal. The faith that we are a part of is communal. It is not private. And sure, I'll concede the fact that it is private to some degree and in some ways as we are all working out our salvation and we are all striving to live personally, faithfully to the call Christ has placed on our lives. But we never do that outside of the context of Christian community. We're working out our salvation, but that takes place... In community, we are baptized, which is what we participated in together last week. We are baptized not as a ticket to heaven, but we are baptized into a family. We are baptized into the body of Christ, and it is in the context of that family that we work out our salvation. And so the family that we are a part of, for us, at least in part, it includes those sitting in these chairs around us today. And one characteristic of family is that we are invited into the personal parts of one another's lives. So this includes what James pointed to earlier that we covered. We confess our sins to one another, which requires incredible humility and vulnerability, but James argues it's an important and necessary part of our faith. But what is more, what he points to right at the end of this letter is we have some sense of responsibility for those we are in community with. This is not a free-for-all. The faith that we are a part of, it's not some sort of isolationist spirituality. We are invested in one another. We have to be invested in one another. And so we are honest. We confess. I confess my sin to you. You do the same And whenever we wander, the community helps keep us grounded in the faith. We are obligated to one another. And the reality is, in this community, but in every small community that makes up the body of Christ, the reality is that many of us will wander. Many of us will be tempted to wander at various points during our journey. I don't think that should be surprising. I don't think that should catch us off guard, but we are committed as a community, as a family, to walking through those times of wandering with one another. And if we are walking that journey with those who wander, there are a couple of commitments we maintain as we walk together. First of all, if somebody in the community wanders, we don't write them off. We don't cut off relationship. We seek to bring them back to the fold. But even if they never return to the faith that we hold so dear, we don't have to end those relationships. Secondly, the idea of bringing somebody back to the fold. I, I don't think the picture that we get in our minds when we read this text in James is a picture of coercion or using fear or using some sense of authority to require somebody's return to the faith. That doesn't work. And to be honest, depending on the personality of the one who wanders, a lot of times I think the worst thing in those situations is to try to compel somebody in sort of a heavy-handed way. And so rather, the position of advocacy that we assume as brothers and sisters In community, is one filled with grace and one filled with mercy for those who happen to find themselves in a doubt, troubled place. Grace and mercy for those who may not be living into that living faith that James has talked about throughout this letter. And of course, we still have a deep desire for our brothers and sisters to return to faith. We always desire that. And we will always do what we can to try to make that a possibility, to open those doors and those lines of communication. But we don't force it. We don't coerce. We don't cut off. We continue walking with our friends this path of life. And we pray that the conversations and the things we do might open a door for their return to the fold of God. But it is situational each of these instances is going to be different and it quite honestly it's probably going to be messy but that's okay because we recognize that we're all in this together and our lives are messy too my life is messy their lives are messy and so we face that honestly Because that's the only thing that a family can do and we confess our sins to one another we try to spur one another on towards faith towards a living faith which is expressed in good deeds but we can't do it alone we do it with one another we don't do it at all kevin if you all want to come up and austin if you want to join me as we prepare for communion You know, we're wrapping up this series in James, and all of the stuff that James has been talking about, all of the ways that he has instructed us over the last several months, the the process of learning to live like Jesus, which is what this has been about, none of that can be done alone. It just can't be done alone. We need each other. And so my encouragement, my challenge to each of you this morning is simply this. Lean into the messiness of community. Lean into that messiness, knowing that it's the only way that we persevere. It's the only way that we make it to the end. We don't make it to the end alone. Amen. If you'd stand this morning as we move towards a time of communion, I think an appropriate way for us to approach the table, in light of what James has instructed us in this morning, would be to corporately confess our sin So as we prepare to come to the table, and again, we invite everyone, we invite you to the body and the blood of Jesus. We believe that in this act you will be nourished, that you will find sustenance, so please come to the table. But as we do, would you join me in this confession of our sin? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought to the glory of your name, amen. Amen, would you join us at the table this morning?